Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lin. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm your host, Dr. Narjus Duma. I'm an assistant professor in thoracic oncologist at the University of Wisconsin. An honor to be joined today by Dr. EVI Dagogo-Jack. Dr. Dagogo-Jack is a thoracic oncologist at Massachusetts General Hospital and an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School. EVI, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Dr. Duma from Narjus. So we're going to talk a little bit about BRAF mutated lung cancer. But first, before we get there, we want to get to know EVI a little bit more. We all have different stories for how we ended in lung cancer. It could have been a patient. It could have been a mentor. So for you, can you please let us know or share with us, how do you find your way to lung cancer clinically and in research? I think for me, it's interesting that you said that, you know, it could have been a patient. It could have been a mentor. For me, I think it was a combination of factors. So both of my parents are physicians, so I grew up around medicine, and I kind of spent my weekends on the, at the hospital helping my dad with research and kind of collecting articles. But I never got experience or exposure to oncology until a neighbor of mine who worked at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital introduced me to a lab there. So I worked in a lab at St. Jude for several summers during college. But at the same time, I knew I was interested in oncology, but I didn't know that lung cancer oncology or thoracic oncology was going to be my focus until I started fellowship. And it just really connected with my lung cancer patients. I was really excited by the science. And I, as you've highlighted, I also kind of had the great fortune to find a mentor that really provided kind of guidance and was doing really exciting work in Alice Shaw here at Mass General. And, you know, it was a combination of the science, the patients, and just kind of the direction the field was leading or heading in that made me very excited and kind of made me, made lung cancer stick for me. I think there are so many factors that, you know, direct you to a disease group and oncology. And ultimately, grandpa used to say that it was easier to divorce a human than to divorce the tumor that you decided to work on. So he always told me to be wise about the disease group I was going to work with. That's very insightful. I often think, too, sometimes it chooses us, right? We, don't, we find something that we just connect with. And to me, I think that I knew from the first week of fellowship that this was a disease that I wanted to study just based on the science, the kind of the opportunities, the patient connections. Yes. And I think you get so specialized sometimes that it's hard. Like I have a patient yesterday that asked me a question about someone being diagnosed with a hematologic malignancy. And my answer is, this, is that seven plus three, what people are doing? And the patient is like, I'm asking you. I'm like, I, Okay. No, <laughs> I think you should talk to a hematologist. Very, very true. We get so specialized. And I think that that's one of the, you know, the advantages of working in academics, right? We can always reach out to a colleague and we're continuously, continually learning. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to catch up with all of that. And as we are talking about becoming very sub-specialized, I really would like to learn how do you get involved with BRAF mutant no small cell lung cancer to start with? Yeah, so my research and fellowship was really focused on targeted therapies in general, looking at fusions, ALP, ROS1, and also looking at other mutations. And part of that interest was fueled by papers that were coming out, translational work, 
closely paired with the Hada Laboratory and the Engelman Laboratory here. And around this time, a lot of interesting literature started coming out around BRAF. As you know, BRAF has been described as a driver alteration in lung cancer for a while now, and also in melanoma, but there wasn't a lot of progress. And the laboratory seems to be kind of in advance of where the clinic was. And so there are great papers coming out in the mid-2010, so 2015 to 2017, from several groups. So I just wanted to highlight the Rosen Laboratory that were really uncovering these variants in BRAF that hadn't been the focus of attention to date and showing that potential strategies for targeting them. And so that sparked my interest in that around this time, people were increasingly adopting molecular diagnostics or kind of broad-scale tumor genotyping, NGS, et cetera, and we were starting to pick up these variants that we would normally ignore, but now they're becoming increasingly relevant. And so for me, I thought it was an opportunity similar to what had been done in ALK, EGFR, and other molecular subsets to really uncover the biology of these subsets and hopefully find personalized approaches for these patients and kind of at the basic level, describe what the clinical pathologic characteristics of these patients are, and so we can do a better job of identifying them. And I think it's very important, and, you know, I have several patients with this subtype of lung cancer, but compared to other mutations, I think you may have taken a back seat from the initial description to the therapy that was approved. But we would love, you know, to hear from you, where are some of the unique characteristics of this subgroup of patients? Yeah, I think that's a very important question, because we get programmed to some degree based on our experience with ALK, EGFR, and ras one to tend to associate certain characteristics with high probability of having a driver or actionable alteration, including kind of having an adenocarcinoma, a tumor of adenocarcinoma histology, having a never minimal smoking history. But BRAF is unique and being a younger age. So our our ALK and uh, ROS1 patients tend to be in their 50s compared to our average all comers with lung cancer. But BRAF tends to stand apart. It's almost more like MET-X on 14 skipping in that we see here across studies that have looked at this, that only about quarter to a third of patients actually have that minimal smoking history in BRAF. And then we also see BRAF mutations in a subset of squamous tumors too. And our patients tend to be closer in age and have the similar comorbidities, et cetera, to patients all comers with lung cancer. And so I think that is a unique characteristic or quality of BRAF mutant lung cancer. And I think that's very important because there's a belief or there's a perception if the patient has smoking history that NGS is less likely to identify a target mutation. But my take to all the trainees is if you don't go looking, you won't find it. And, you know, I think in patients that even if they have a smoking history, every, the diagnosis alone adenocarcinoma is not complete until we have biomarker testing. And even for squamous, particularly patients that are too young or patients that have you know, a mixed histology. And I think it's very important that, you know, this group of patients don't fit the box of the group, but they still have targeted therapy option. No, I agree. And I think it's on us as clinicians, as physicians, as researchers to continuously redefine what that box is, right? The hope is that the box keeps getting wider and wider and eventually we encompass all of our patients with some sort of personalized approach. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry to interrupt. No problem. I was just saying rather than narrowing that box. Yeah. And I think it makes sense. I have patients that are doing very well. I think for our listeners, it's important to discuss that, you know, not all BRAF mutations are the same. And I would love for you to explain that a little bit, not only to the physicians that are listening to us, but also to the trainees and the patients. 
Yeah, and I think that one of the intriguing, this is one of the reasons I am particularly interested in BRAF. I think the science is fascinating. And so there are actually, not all BRAF mutations are created equal, meaning they all, and naturally they won't all respond to the same therapies. And so beautiful science is really exposed to us or kind of made clear to us that there's three classes of BRAF mutations. The first is the one we're most familiar with. And so these are the V600 mutations, the most common being kind of the V600E mutation. These tend to signal as monomers and they don't, they kind of signal independent of KRAF. So the cell doesn't listen to KRAS in this setting. This is the class of BRAF mutation for which we can repurpose therapies that already exist for melanoma, where V600 is kind of dominant molecular alteration. And that really had been our focus for decades or kind of for years until, you know, molecular genotyping and other studies made it clear that there's other BRAF mutations that are recurrent in lung cancer. And these are categorized as class two or class three based on their function. And so class two mutations are activating similar to a class one, but these signal as homodimers. So they need two different kind of BRAF proteins to signal. They're activating as well as mentioned, and they don't depend on KRAS either. Here, it may not be completely beneficial to give someone a BRAF inhibitor that's already available in the clinic because these were selectively or specifically designed to inhibit a monomer. And so when you give someone that type of drug, there's still one aspect of the protein or one component of the protein called a protomer that it's uninhibited. So there's still an opportunity for downstream signaling and kind of proliferation of the cells. Class three was described more recently, and this one's very interesting in that these are actually hypofunctioning variants. And so they don't actually increase kinase activity. What they do is they amplify the upstream RAS signal or amplify dependence on RAS signaling. And they tend to occur kind of concurrent with KRAS mutations or NF1 inactivating mutations that drive RAS signaling or with kind of upstream receptor tyrosine kinase activation. In colon cancer, it's been described that EGFR, in lung cancer, EGFR probably is a driver. There's other growth signals that can cause that excess signal that can just tighten the connection between BRAF and KRAS in these tumors. And so there's a lot of biology that probably still needs to be unraveled, particularly in the class two subset. But I think it's been very exciting to see how this biology can inform therapies and help us know why we can't just the exact same therapy we use for class one, class two, and three. I think that's extremely fascinating. And I think it shows how much we know and how much we don't know about this subgroup of patients and the importance to continue to prioritize, you know, this subgroup and, you know, no pick aside, but make sure we advance the science for every subtype of lung cancer. I completely agree. And, you know, one of the challenges is, as you say, the targeted therapy is very is present or approved for a very subtype of BRAF mutant. And, you know, the benefit can be limited. But how efficacious is this targeted therapy in this group of patients? Yeah, and so for the targeted therapy, I think take a step back that there are BRAF and MEK inhibitors. So this is one molecular subset where we actually start off with a combination, which is very distinct, very different from what we do with other molecular subsets of lung cancer. And so there have been kind of back in 2016, a a paper came out by Blanchard and colleagues where there was a multi-arm phase two study that evaluated certain approaches, one being BRAF inhibitor monotherapy with dabrafenib. I will say that there've been other studies looking at other BRAF monomer inhibitors, including bemrafenib. Across those studies, we see about a 30% response rate, median progression-free survival of about five months for patients and disease control rate around 60%. And we know from melanoma that, you know, it's better to double down on the pathway or vertical blockade where you block both BRAF as well as the protein downstream neck. 
And so, so that led to, in that study, exploring the combination in parallel with kind of the monotherapy or single agent BRAF inhibitor. And what we learned from that study is that you can double the response rate and double the PFS. So response rate is now around 60%. Median progression-free survival is around 10 to 11 months. And interestingly, a question that often comes up is, you know, how do we sequence it, right? Based on those numbers, do we give the BRAF combination first or do we start with chemo? Do we start with immunotherapy? And interestingly, in that study, there is a group of patients who got the BRAF MEC combo first and a group of patients who got it after they had their cancer had grown on chemotherapy. And it was very surprising to find kind of inconsistent with what we've seen with other molecular subsets, that efficacy was nearly identical in both settings, given people confidence that, you know, you can start with this targeted therapy, or it may probably work just as well if you gave it after chemotherapy. And I will say, you know, these numbers kind of 10 to 11 months, they're good, but they're not quite where we see kind of electinib, even our newer RET inhibitors. And so there is some work to do. And I think that's very important about the sequencing. I do tend to go with target therapy first. In part, it can be, you know, during the pandemic, during 2020, you know, having patients in neural therapy was decreased the chances of the patient coming to the clinic. And also in some cases, some of these patients may get very sick, you know, after chemotherapy. So I always have the fear that they may get very sick at the time of disease progression and I cannot put them in, put them in targeted therapy. Do you have a way of selecting or do you go first with targeted therapy in these two group of patients? Or do you go do chemo? How do you make that decision? Yeah, I think it's a challenge, right? It's complex. And I do it at the patient level. And so and what I mean by that is that so as mentioned, around 20, only about a quarter of patients are going to be never smokers. I think some of our concern with you starting with generic or kind of molecular alteration agnostic therapies and other molecular subsets is that we have the studies showing that starting with a targeted therapy is much better than chemotherapy. And we also have the retrospective and in some cases, prospective studies showing that there's enhanced toxicity and lack of benefit from immunotherapy. I think it's a little bit tougher in BRAF in that while we don't have the prospective studies looking at immunotherapy, the retrospective analyses suggest that patients for the most part with BRAF mutations do just as well as all comers with immunotherapy. You know, I give the caveat that these studies have about 40 to 50 BRAF positive patients in them and tend to have a heterogeneous mix of non-V600 versus V600. And so we really need to separate kind of our never smokers or minimal smokers and our kind of ever smokers and really dial, kind of drill down on the immunotherapy effect in these patients before making broad conclusions. But I completely agree with you that I try to start with a targeted therapy if I can. And if I can't, I, you know, as someone needs to start therapy urgently, I start with chemotherapy with these patients. But this is one subset that, you know, I wouldn't, if someone had a, you know, high pdl one expression, had a smoking history, and I felt that for some reason they couldn't tolerate some of the toxicities associated with the targeted, the BRAF-MEC combination, that I would have a little bit more comfort giving them that, the immunotherapy first line, something like that. And I think that's, that's true because these patients are more heterogeneous than we may see in other patients. And, you know, the goal you and I discussed is that we bring attention to, to this subgroup of patients and also that we share with our listeners how heterogeneous this disease can be. We in a subset and that they are different from the other groups, but they deserve equal attention and care. Exactly, exactly. And I think that we, it's kind of a task or an opportunity in front of all of us now to really tease apart these the kind of the heterogeneity and complexity within BRAF. 
so we can figure out the best treatments for different subsets of this subset of lung cancer, basically. Because I don't think that there's going to be one treatment for everyone. And I think there are some people where it's not probably not going to be ideal to start with immunotherapy or start with chemotherapy. And we have to figure out who those patients are. So there's a lot of things we're learning and more things we need to learn. Something that I think over time, BRAF, MEC-directed therapy, and I think just because the data comes from melanoma at the beginning, have gone a reputation that the treatment is toxic. And it is not, it could be a little bit more toxic than some other targeted therapies. As I mentioned, I have several patients and I have learned, you know, how to manage these adverse events over time, but they're a little bit different. So one of them is the fevers, right? We see higher rates of drug-induced fevers with the BRAF-MEC combination that we may see with other targeted therapy. And as this is, you know, one of your areas of interest, we love to learn from you what some of the lessons that you have acquired over time or how to treat these unique toxicities from the BRAF-MEC combinations. Yeah, I think that's a very, very important and insightful question, right? I think the first thing with toxicities is preparation, right? Toxicity can be extremely distressing if you were not warned that it could happen. And so I think that the first thing I do is that, you know, don't sugarcoat that how tough these drugs can be. And so when I meet a patient and I'm starting them on it, I make them aware that there's, you know, the majority of patients will have some sort of side effect. In most cases, they're gastrointestinal. And in a significant proportion of patients, you may have fevers. These are not your typical fever that we tend to associate with infection, but we'd like to know about it because there's things that we might be able to do, adjustments we might be able to make that will make it so that we can control the fevers, but you may you can still continue on the drug. I think it's important to note, and a lot of this is kind of borrowed from talking with our melanoma colleagues who see a whole lot more of BRAF positive patients or BRAF patients with BRAF mutant lung cancer or BRAF mutant cancers. And what we've learned is that, you know, a lot, the fever is primarily driven by the BRAF inhibitor. And so one can do is in general, we interrupt the therapy, start antipyretics, uh, Tylenol, et cetera. Some people will benefit from just that short break antipyretic and can actually be rechallenged at the same dose. But if that isn't possible, you can actually half the dose or dose reduce the BRAF inhibitor and persist at the same dose of the MEK inhibitor. And many patients will actually tolerate it with that dose adjustment. And so that is something I kind of discuss with my patients. I think another thing we should recognize too is that sometimes you can have constitutional symptoms that are not fevers. So patients, I've had patients who've had sweats as a similar manifestation and the response to kind of similar maneuvers. This is really interesting because the side effects are different. I often find myself, because I specialize in women with lung cancer. So I have a decent group of ERAF, mutant lung cancer, just knocking at the door. Uh, my call is from melanoma, which I'm thankful they're down the hall and say, it's like, hey, my patient have this now. And, you know, for many of them, they have a lot of experience. So I think if you, you haven't used the therapies, always having people around that may have a little bit more experience is helpful. And as a side, you know, anecdote, when last year in March of this year, I have two patients started in BRAF MEC direct therapy. And I remember they were calling the cancer center and they're saying they have fevers and both of them go immediately tested for COVID-19. And my patient's like, this is the drugs. This is the drug. <laughs> the primary care doctors, you know, we were all like so non-familiar. Now we're more familiar with what happens. They go tested for COVID-19, the poor lady, so many times in a matter of like six weeks, 
just because, you know, these drugs are not familiar to the primary care doctor, for example. No, I agree. I think a lot of it is just kind of education. And also, as you mentioned, reach, phoning a friend, right? Reaching out to colleagues who have more familiarity with using these drugs. I think one other way that we BRAF-MEK inhibitors make us think like a melanoma doctor or kind of a cutaneous oncologist is that if you use a BRAF inhibitor by itself, there across the studies, there's like a 10% risk, 10 to 15% risk of having uh, skin cancers that are RAS-driven. That diminishes to around 3 three to 5% when you do the combo of BRAF-MEK but we still have to make sure we keep an eye on our patients' rashes and skin findings and make sure they're getting appropriate follow-up with a dermatologist. And so these aren't things we have to necessarily think about with other targeted therapies. And I think the follow-up with the dermatologist is really important. Like I ask my patients, you know, send me a picture, let's do this. And with COVID-19, I think the dermatologists are more comfortable doing this telemedicine encounters because in fact, you can do show the rash in the videos. And having follow-up is important. I have patients that have, despite being in the dual therapy, they have developed squamous skin cancer. And, you know, you want to catch this up before they come out in a location that can produce significantly aesthetic changes. So now the patient does not only have lung cancer, but also have squamous cell of the skin. So follow-up is just extremely important. I agree with you. And I think that it's funny, me and my colleagues joke a lot that, you know, the extent of our dermatologic knowledge is a maculopapular rash and an EGFR rash, a TKI rash, right? And so I, I don't think that we all have to become experts on this. I think that you just, if you start someone on this type of therapy, be cognizant or be almost hyper aware of skin findings and be kind of no reluctant, have no reluctance to refer to dermatology for further follow-up. Yeah. And there's a whole, there's a joke in the community that every time an internist, which in part that's what we are, right? We, we went to internal medicine first. Every time an internist describes a rash, a dermatology cries. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> my descriptions of rash are like red, no warm, no centimeter. <laughs> exactly. Two centimeter on this location. I think a picture is actually, as you pointed out, a picture is probably way more helpful than some of our descriptors. Yeah. So what I do sometimes is, you know, heap our compliant pictures. We have these phones and iPods in the cancer center. So I take a picture before the referral to dermatology and I write limited discretion, please see picture attached. So at least, you know, they, because sometimes I describe the rash and I go back to the dermatologist note and it's completely different. The description is like, we have a bunch of other words. And I'm like, okay, I guess it wasn't like that. Exactly, exactly. And, and we touched a little bit about this, you know, about what happens after, you know, disease progression happens because 10 to 11 months is still limited time for some of these patients. And we talk about combination chemo immunotherapy. So at the time of disease progression, we're, I'm going to present you with two scenarios. So one is a patient that has a smoking history, PDL one 40%. Which will be your next line of therapy after the BRAF MEC directed therapy? You got to make it tough, huh? 40%? Yeah, not, of course. Not, <laughs> not 55 or something? Nope, 40%. <laughs> and it's a female. Uh, you said smoking history, correct? Yeah. yeah I, I'm going to give you 30 pack for years. Yeah I, yeah, I think in general, right? You come to a crossroads when the BRAF MEC inhibitor stops working. Ideally, we apply the same principles that we use with other targeted therapies and that we get a biopsy or get liquid biopsy to try to, a tissue or liquid biopsy to try to figure out why the medicine has stopped working. 
But I think after your targeted therapy has been exhausted, you're at a crossroads where you can pursue standard therapies, which would be immunotherapy versus the combo of chemo and immunotherapy versus a clinical trial. And so for me, I would, I think with the 40% pd one expression, unless someone was particularly fragile, I would pursue chemo plus immunotherapy. I think if they were fragile or uh, kind of the performance status was tenuous or, and they were basically disenthusiastic or absolutely did not want chemotherapy, then uh, I think it's okay based on chemo uh, 42 to try immunotherapy by itself. I think I would be reassured to some degree in that the half-life of our pills, our targeted therapies are relatively short. And so they should wash out of the system. So kind of any overlapping toxicities may be minimized with this type of sequence. And I'm going to ask you one question. So as we are learning for an EGFR-directed therapy, the tenor disease progression, rebioxine is taking, you know, a forefront. Mm-hmm. I have, unfortunately, patients that have transformation, which an honest like being honest with you, you know, every time we hear transformation, we always think about hematologic malignancies. Mm-hmm. But now we're seeing this with EGFR direct therapy and, you know, Mass General has been a center or a lot of studies describing this. So for patients that are BRAF meeting, do you do a regular biopsy at a time, like a repeat biopsy at a time of disease progression? I always try to do, a, if there's an, a site that's amenable to biopsy that wouldn't introduce too much risk or toxicity. And if I have the time, like I'm not rushed for treatment, I always try to prioritize tissue. And especially for certain patterns of disease progression, if someone is progressing only in the brain or only not the brain, but only in the chest or something like that, where liquid biopsies or plasma may not be as informative. But at the same time, I think that we're moving into a new frontier, right? A new universe where plasma is starting to prevail. But as you've mentioned, there are limitations of getting a liquid biopsy. And that while we may be able to get some clues that perhaps there's a histologic switch, if we see certain molecular alterations like RB and B53 mutations, we don't know with certainty unless we do the tissue biopsy. And so that's always been my preference and bias when I can. And I think, you know, I usually rebiopsy if possible, right? Because it's all about location, 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 and the risks of these rebiopsies. Because it helps you understand, particularly as we are privileged to be in institutions where NGS or next-gen sequencing is the rule of thumb, right? Or patients get that at diagnosis. So it kind of helps you write this book with the patient about their disease. I I found it very instructive to know how the cancer may or may not have changed or evolved after being exposed to targeted therapy. I agree. And I think that the tough part with this particular molecular subset, right? So for ALK, EGFR, we often have a clear path forward, right? Maybe ALK is a better example. We have a clear path forward, right? You see this particular mutation, you know that you can, you have a next drug in your pocket that will overcome that particular alteration. I would say that we're not there yet with BRAF mutant lung cancer. We have some experience with kind of several groups describing small series of patients, maybe 20 patient max series that have shown using a, either plasma or using tissue that the tumors really do double down on this MAPK pathway. We're not seeing a lot of bypass pathway signal, and it may be because we're in early days, basically. But what we've seen is emergence of KRAS mutations and MEK mutations. And that is not unexpected because these are alterations that lead, and again, I'm talking in the context of a targeted therapy for B600 mutant lung cancer. And these are alterations that lead to dimerization dependence, right? That you can then bypass that monomer inhibitor. 
And so it does create some sort of food for thought in the sense that there are newer therapies that are emerging that are specifically designed to block dimers and to, or to break up dimers and also newer therapies that are developed to inhibit downstream, so inhibit ERK. And so would patients benefit from that type of combination approach after they've developed these RAS mutations, which are CRAF dependent? So you, you need, so for lack of getting into too, ma too many technical details, you need a drug that blocks both CRAF and BRAF. And so there are drugs out there, PANRAF, so-called PANRAF dimer inhibitors paired with an ERK inhibitor that might be able to, in theory, overcome this form of resistance and in theory, also perhaps forestall or delay this type of resistance if you gave them first. And so those are, I think that's the next wave of studies, several of which are ongoing. And I think that ties up to some of the work that you have done about acquired resistance to dabrafenib and trametinib, correct? Yeah. And so I think that sometimes we're fortunate enough to have kind of a whole, like a disease, it's not fortunate, but we have the opportunity where there's a disease that's highly prevalent where you can rely on one center to generate all the information and learn and study uh, resistance in detail. But sometimes you have rare things like BRAF mutant lung cancer, where I think it really has to be a collective effort. And this is what has really started to move the field forward in recent years have really been these multi-institutional efforts across kind of different countries or spanning the world, kind of international efforts. And I think that's what we have to do for us to move the science forward and to get the numbers that we need to really understand resistance. Because with the rarity of some of these alterations, each doctor is probably going to have a handful of patients who get these therapies. And it's tough to make, to get kind of very clear insights from a small handful of patients or to recognize recurrent patterns. And so what I described in, in terms of KRAS mutations and MEC mutations has really been based on people pulling together their data and looking at what emerged that resistance. And I think these, these are the studies that we need moving forward. And I think it's very important. The collaboration is collaboration is essential for lung cancer because we're no lung cancer is no longer one disease. And it used to be two histologic subtypes. And now it's subdivided not only from the target aspects, but many aspects that make different subgroup of patients different. And I think collaboration is essential. As I mentioned in previous podcasts, I specialize in younger women with lung cancer. And collaboration through different institutions, countries, and continents, I think is essential. Because otherwise, we're going to end with a very small sample study published that will not change the standard of care because the sample is small. I agree. It either will, and in some cases, I think worst case scenario, right, is that perhaps it changes the standard of care in the wrong direction because you overaccentuate something that was a that happened just to be a fluke based on a small data set, and so then we start to put too much importance on the finding. Whereas if you got a larger set, you could then get a better sense of the prevalence of a particular resistance mechanism. Then if you had a data set of 10 patients and you happen to find it in two, then you say 20% of patients are going to have this thing and you focus all your attention on that thing only to learn later as you get more data. That actually with a data set of 50 patients, it was still only those two patients who had it. And so I think that we can be more precise in our understanding of resistance with larger data sets. And we need to be as precise as possible to get the, to better inform our next line therapies. And I think that's important. And while this is not the subject of the podcast, I think it is, it needs to be mentioned that we need to make sure that all populations are included in the trials because we continue to collect data for a majority white middle-aged population. And then we have to extrapolate that data 
when the therapies get approved to a population that does not represent the population of clinical trials. And when you're in the clinic seeing the patient, you know, you're like, well, there were no Latino women in this study. Let's see how you do. And I think this not only applies to BRAF, but in general to all studies in lung cancer. I agree. And I think that that also speaks to the importance of kind of post-marketing studies, real-world data sets too. I know there's a lot of interest and enthusiasm for this type of study among our patient advocacy groups, right? To do surveys to really figure out how people handle these drugs and tolerate these drugs outside of a clinical trial setting. And, you know, to ask the real questions, like in the clinical trials, to ask about things that affect their patients, like their sexual health mm-hmm. or their mood. How are you doing with this? And that's what I think for BRAF and many other subtypes of lung cancer, patients advocacy and involvement in research is essential because they are going to ask the real questions because they are unfortunately the ones dealing with the disease every day. Exactly. Exactly. So along those lines, and just to finish this thought process, as we're talking about toxicities from BRAF MEG directed therapy, I have patients for different backgrounds and I can tell you the skin manifestations are very different between patients that have like a Hispanic background or maybe a little bit mixed compared to patients that have a different skin color. So I think including people, we also allow you to understand is, if is this, you know, an adverse event of the therapy or this is something else. No, I agree. I agree. I think uh, there is kind of, there's too little diversity across our studies. And I think that it's, as you pointed out, it's extremely unfortunate because I think it's hindering our ability to do what's best for our patients. And so I think that Again, we need to be more inclusive, improve. I know there's a lot of efforts through lung cancer societies, et cetera, to improve the diversity in our clinical trials and also to encourage outreach efforts that can increase and make sure that our patient population is reflective of the real world and not just reflective of a very tight community that may not be generalizable. You want whatever study you have to be generalizable, ideally because we can anticipate or we can expect that every doctor is going to reinvent or kind of redo a clinical trial individually in each of their patients. So I think it's incumbent upon us to do the trials the right way the first time. And I understand that there's a tension there. There's always going to be a tension uh, between inclusion criteria, et cetera, and selecting the best patients for a trial and how we apply that to the real world and apply that to all comers. And I think this is a great start for us, for you and I to have a different conversation and a different podcast. And I love this because you know, we're having real conversations. And I think that's something that we should explore to have a discussion. I'm going to head back to BRAF, mutant <laughs> no small cell lung cancer, because I'm certain that you and I can talk about diversity in clinical trials for quite some time. But down the pipeline for BRAF, mutant no small cell lung cancer, what do you think is like very interested and interesting and what was presented at World Conference of 2020 that, you know, caught your attention? Yeah, so I wish there was more on BRAF in World Lung 2020. But what I would say is that what has caught, what has made me excited, I think is what the studies that we'll start to see in the coming years. And so novel approaches to that really take into consideration insights gained from the laboratory about why some of these, the distinctions between the RAF activation mechanisms of the different BRAF classes. For example, uh, SHIP2 inhibitors are starting to emerge in the clinic. They're undergoing kind of first in human testing at this point, but there's great work by uh, Trevor Bavona's group demonstrating 
that they're the class three BRAF mutants, the ones that are hypofunctioning, for lack of a better word, may be uniquely positioned to respond to a SHIP2 inhibitor because these inhibitor, this class of drugs uh, impedes RAS GTP loading. And so RAS activation is kind of deterred in that setting. And so these BRAF mutants can't function independent of that. Other things that I think are exciting are the novel ways of breaking up uh, RAF dimers or inhibiting RAF dimers and not just kind of borrowing from melanoma or borrowing from existing therapies, but bringing forward new approaches. And these, as I mentioned, include pan-RAF inhibitors and also RAF dimer breakers. And I think that something that we always think about in the context of targeted therapy and in the context of lung cancer is how can we get better in the CNS? How can we be better for brain metastasis? Because that is a common site of treatment failure. And so the treatment's failing to penetrate the CNS or due to blood-brain barrier access issues in pharmacokinetics. So building uh, better BRAF and MEK inhibitors or PANRAF MEK inhibitors that are optimized to enter the CNS. And so I think those are the directions that I'm most excited about. Well, thank you so much. We are wrapping up this podcast. I would like to thank you, Dr. Dagogo Jack, for your time, your insights. And I want to thank the audience for listening. Don't forget to like the podcast, to share it with your colleagues, friends, and stay safe and be well. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. But in reality, you
Thank mm-hmm. you.